Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. Today, we have Liz Gary joining the show. Liz has worked in the world of e-com and marketing for almost a decade at places like Walmart, Wayfair, Camping World, and now she's the VP of e-commerce and marketing at Pharmaca, a digital pharmacy that was built to improve the pharmacy experience. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for having me and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm glad to have you on the show. This is a world that I haven't really gotten to explore much. But before we do that, I actually want to dive into you and hear about your background, because I, of course, was stalking your LinkedIn. <laughs> and I was like, wow, Liz had an interesting pivot in her life where she was working at Insight Global, which is like an IT tech staffing firm. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's a quick pivot into the world of e-commerce. And I wanted to kind of hear, I think you jumped right to Wayfair after that and spent a couple of years there, five years there. Mm-hmm. I want to hear what that journey was like and like why you decided to enter the world then. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, your LinkedIn stocking reminds me that I need to update my photo, which now is probably six years old, um, for those who are, uh, comparing the before and after. Um, but yeah, so I started my career in it, uh, consulting and recruitment for a company called insight global. Um, and I think like a lot of recent college grads was really focused on my senior year at Middlebury and didn't spend enough reflective time figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Still working on that, uh, if I'm being honest, but um, knew that I wanted to be in Boston and um, really enjoyed the people that I spoke to and so accepted the role um, and was really fortunate enough to uh, enter a peer group that have remained really, really close friends. And it was a, is a fantastic introduction in um, really the back end of business, um, working on the technology side. And I had no idea what I was doing. At Insight Global, you start as a recruiter. So you are scanning different resumes, trying to fill roles ranging from, you know, a data entry associate to VP of engineering, CTO, et cetera. So the expertise and the languages are pretty extensive. And as an art history at a major at a liberal arts school was very unprepared for um, what that terminology meant. And remember the first time I saw Java on a resume, I was like, what is he doing talking about coffee? Uh, as a programmer. Um, But it really ignited my curiosity in technology and uh, how businesses in that day and age were operating. My main clientele ended up being financial services institutions. So a lot of regulation um, and interesting bits of of innovation. Um, I did that for a little less than a year and realized that uh, IT consulting was not going to be my calling in the long term. And this little company at the time was trying to be a first to market and selling sofas online to the masses. And I was really curious about how they were going to disrupt this very old industry uh, where lead times were 12 weeks and you went into a showroom and you sampled samples of fabrics and you sat on 18 different sofas Uh, So I was really curious by the idea of translating all of that online. 
and started as an account manager at uh, Wayfair when there were probably about 300 people. The average age was probably 26. Um, We were jam-packed into an office space that we had on Boylston where the elevators, if you tried to get in after 8.45, you would wait for at least a half an hour to get in there. Um, I don't know if we were up to fire code with how many people were on each floor, (laughs) but it was unbelievable. I had the uh, the opportunity to sit just a couple rows behind Stephen years and getting to hear them on the phones and talking about uh, their vision for uh, the business was was unbelievable. Um, so it was an incredible experience and ended up being there for about five and a half years. Wow. So tell me more about the experience of being able to be yeah in that culture. You know, like you said, you were able to sit right near, what is it, founders? I, I didn't recognize. Yeah. Okay, that's mm-hmm. what I was thinking. I was like, I think it's the founders. Um, being able to sit near them and kind of hear how they were navigating it back then. Like, yeah, bring me into that space with you. Yeah, absolutely. It was this amazing intersection of, they had such a clear vision in solving their own needs that translated to so many different customers. It started as CSN stores, which was a, you know, basically an aggregator of thousands of different micro micro sites uh, serving very specific uh, types of goods and bringing that holistically on under one umbrella. Uh, Before that, there were very few destinations that were selling home furnishings, everything from candles to pillows to full on sectionals or Murphy beds uh, online. And they saw such a unique opportunity in being able to provide a really robust assortment and deliver that quickly. So it was unbelievable having such clarity and vision and everything that we were doing, regardless of if you were in marketing, if you were a category associate, if you were in site merchandising, you had a very clear point of view on what we were what you were trying to do, which was build a best in class destination for selling home furnishings. Um, I was working on the all modern brand, which is our modern boutique that uh, went through a few different life cycles in terms of the types of brands that we were sell- selling. We started as uh, kind of a DWR type destination, selling brands like Herman Miller, Knoll, Foscarini, really, really high end luxury pieces. Um, so had this really interesting market of uh, trade professionals. Uh, so Wayfair and all of its various brands were really able to touch from A to Z the different uh, customer types that accessed home goods, whether you were a designer or a mother in Arkansas uh, building and, and designing your home for your family of five. Um, and so to be able to overhear and uh, respond to that type of clarity was something that I was very fortunate to learn from an early age because so often especially today um, in the startup space, it's very easy to get distracted and you know quickly have an OKR deck of 15 different priorities and it just never works. Um, and so we were always working on a lot of different things, but it would always harken back to that vision of being the best destination for selling home furniture. So whether it was building out an internal supply chain network, best-in-class merchandising, variants of PDPs, it was all on making that customer journey easier. Um, and, and that clarity was just, it was amazing to see, um, truly every, every day you heard it come back to that vision. Um, it was a little bit frightening sitting so close to them. Um, cause I had no idea what I was doing at, at 24. Um, 
you know, it was always trying to sit up very straight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can definitely imagine. I mean, when looking at like what you did there, it seems like you definitely had a lot of room to play, you know, for being like a younger, you know, newer entrant into the market maybe. And looking at everything you got to do, I'm like, it seems like you had a lot of responsibilities that you got to figure out. I mean, I'm looking at like driving negotiations around profit margins and pricing. And I'm like, wow, that'd be an interesting conversation doing that with luxury brands versus all the other brands at Wayfair. Like what did that, yeah, that your role just looks a lot to me. So I'm like, what did that actually look yeah. like having to like go between the two, you know? Yeah, it was definitely an evolution. Um, the first year and a half, two years at All Modern, um, we were really focused on being this luxury destination. So, so much of what we were doing, we're working with these brands to really uh, create an additional sales opportunity for them. Um, at that point in time, distribution was to a very specific, very upper tendulum clientele. And we were basically able to offer them a different platform to serve, you know, a more upper scaled mass market customer that, um, you know, maybe can't buy the full uh, tulip chair and table, but could buy a light or mm -hmm. a side table. So a lot of what we were doing in partnership with those brands at that time was working on marketing, uh, collateral, building um, an additional platform to expose and educate their brands to a different customer type. And because they have very strict guardrails around pricing and uh, brand equity, the conversations were kind of uh, focused on partnership expansion, but under their terminology. Um, and so over time that that changed, but it was an unbelievable opportunity being able to walk into showrooms with um, our vice president at the time, Sarah Whitman, who was um, a phenomenal leader in the sense that she really gave you the opportunity to lead conversations with you know, very senior executives, um, quite, quite junior in your tenure, and shared a lot of grace in being able to expose um, younger associates to being able to negotiate for uh, marketing assets and co-op, et cetera, uh, new product releases. Um, over time, we realized that that was likely not the best space for us to be operating. Our mm -hmm. customer demographic changed. And so we housed a lot of those brands, but uh, primarily through our uh, account management program that was working directly with designers. So more in mirrorship with kind of their core business and shifted more into um, kind of modern, uh, a more modern Scandinavian aesthetic. So similar to the West Elms of the world or articles. Um, so really trying to take advantage of this movement that we saw into simplicity, um, you know, mixed materials and started to curate more items specifically versus uh, brands that fit that kind of aesthetic. We had a, we have a, a sister brand, Joss and Maine, which was primarily at the time a uh, flash sale destination that had a very kind of core demographic in terms of aesthetic reach. And what we saw work so well was being able to partner with that and expand it in the modern, in the modern space. Um, so we were really focused on that curation element, bringing together a smaller assortment that was kind of fine-tunely picked from uh, what we saw in the upper tendulum from a brand's perspective, and then kind of combing through what Wayfair could offer. Got it. Got it. I want to touch on the management piece earlier because that yeah. kind of stuck out to me where I think you were talking about your manager, Sarah Whitman. Mm -hmm. 
And I was thinking like how important it is when you're, I mean, any employee, not even like a newer or a younger employee to find managers like that. Like I yeah. I had one at Google who was like that too, where she would put me in these positions that made me so uncomfortable. And I'm like, why am I presenting this? Why am I the one doing this? And mm-hmm. she also gave room for failure where it's like, oh yeah, that's, if you mess up, it's fine. Like it's not that big of a deal, even though when I look back on it now, I was like, that was definitely a big deal. Like that was yeah. a big issue getting, you know, whatever wrong. Um, but yeah, like thinking like, how does, how do you seek that out? I mean, that's always felt difficult to me to, to tell people is like, how do you vet a manager when you're like yeah. thinking about roles to know that they're going to put you in those kind of positions, even if it makes them look bad sometimes? Yeah, that's such a good question. Especially at Wayfair being so early on in my career, um, it was hard to know exactly what to look out for. I played two uh, sports at Middlebury, uh, field hockey and lacrosse, and was really fortunate that the coaches did such a phenomenal job at curating players who who shared the same goaling uh, structures, shared the same belief system, were very different. But, um, you know, what what was really um, core to all of our beliefs kept kept the glue together. Um, And you don't know until you've experienced bad leadership or what those traits necessarily are. Um, I think it's a lot easier to um, learn from stepping up to the plate and striking out a million times than stepping up to the plate and hitting a home run. Mm-hmm. And at Wayfair, Sarah Whitman was our was our first executive. And then um, Ashley Sullivan came in kind of towards the, the latter half of, of my tenure. And the thing that both of them had in common was autonomy. Um, I think when you are, when you show promise and you have kind of checked the list of uh, things you need to do in order to have a seat at the table, um, having someone who's willing to pull back the curtains and let you take center stage, even if you forget a line or fall on your face is so, so important. Um, And Ashley in particular um, really encouraged me both to take risks internally she moved me around to a bunch of different categories to expose and deepen my understanding of the business and was really strategic around giving me projects that were going to stretch my uh, thinking patterns um, and exposure into different leaders within the business. Um, you know, finding those career champions um, are so, so important because you have to advocate for yourself, but having someone who can echo your sentiments, um, is really critical. She also was really, um, one of the first people who gave me permission to think outside of the walls of Wayfair. Mm -hmm. She wrote my business school applications, helped a lot with, uh, encouraging me to double down on the math section because that was pretty challenging for me on the GMATs. Um, but gave me, you know, the green light for saying that it's okay if Wayfair was not my forever home, which, um, it's pretty rare in in big companies um, to have top talent get the green light and in, in looking outside. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that that's the things that I think also stick with you where you talk about it afterwards. I remember the yeah. same manager told me, hey, go start the company you want, Steph. And if you ever want to come back, like you'll always have a job here. And I was like, wow, like that's, you know, just very different to hear someone be like, I understand, like, go do this. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity and we're here if you need it. But that sticks with you where like I'm thinking how many people I've told about that over time mm-hmm. of like that's the kind of leader this person is or this company has or whatnot. So it's powerful. Absolutely. And I think 
leaders, companies that do that well, there's a kickback that they get, whether it's through uh, referrals or promotion of those brands and those businesses. Um, I think it's it's really important to make sure as a leader that you're investing in your people, both where they are at their present and where their future is. Mm-hmm. Um, Bain does a really good job about developing kind of their advocacy program after people leave uh, the firm. And it allows them to pull in different people from a networking perspective, be able to vet new projects. Um, so that's something that I've always tried to take with me is you never know how that kickback might kind of resonate down the line. Yep. Yep. I love it. Okay. So you're five years in at Wayfair and all of a sudden here comes Walmart. What, what happened? Like, how did you know it was the right time to go somewhere new? And then what drew you towards Walmart? Yeah. Um, I reached a point at Wayfair where, um, we had just gone public. Everything felt a little bit higher stakes, right? We had, uh, a different customer that we had to, to show results for. Um, I looked around and everyone around me had an MBA. Um, And so not really understanding uh, clearly where I wanted to go. It felt like I needed to have this thing in order to get to the next level. Um, And I had been on a trajectory where I was getting promoted every year and a half or so. Um, So I went through the application process, visited a bunch of schools, took the GMAT like seven times, I think. Not a great test taker. Um, and the week that I was getting my, uh, letters back, I got a call from Walmart and they were looking for someone to manage their, uh, rugs business for e-commerce. And it was a post MBA level based in San Francisco. I had been in Boston for five and a half years and felt like, you know what, now's the time to take a big risk. I feel ready to, uh, explore a new city to push myself socially, Um, And let's put my kind of professional academic experience to the test um, at the biggest retailer in the country. And so it just felt ripe to take a big dive. Okay, so what was that like? And I'm thinking about maybe like the first couple months of jumping into Walmart. Were you like, what the hell? Like, what is this? Or like, how was that transition? (laughs) Yes, it was. Um, well, first of all, I had really no understanding of, of the city of San Francisco, which I love (laughs) so dearly. And so I was staying in the Tenderloin, which Mm -hmm. is a harder area of the city to navigate in a hotel (laughs) and cried every single day. Um, Uh (laughs) I think the highlight of the day was coming home and they had an it's, it's, uh, cooler. So that was my treat. But Walmart is a merchandising organization. They are the best uh, career merchants, uh, in the country. And what was so exciting about Wayfair was you had a really mixed perspective that made up the category management team. You had people who were consultants in, uh, the government space. You had people who, uh, were history majors at a liberal arts school. You had people who had some merchandising experience and what really anchored them all together was this passion to serve customer problems and use data to make informed decisions around building an assortment. Walmart is very merchant-led, so we spent time critiquing items literally one by one. At one point in time, I think the Rugs assortment had something like, you know, 17 million different SKUs, and I was blown away by the um, level of precision and detailed-oriented behavior that you needed to have as a merchant. You need to know... Uh, your 
everything about an item and get really hyped about it. Um, and that was just so different because we didn't talk in that, in that type of terminology. So, you know, there were KPIs that I had never heard of. There were uh, strategy decks that I had never heard of. We were talking about um, assortment planning in a very different way than um, I ever knew. So the first six months, I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> um despite everyone being like, oh my goodness, you came from Wayfair, tell us everything. Um, So it was really humbling because I felt like I had taken a big role in terms of scope and um, then almost had to take, you know, 10 steps back in terms of the language and uh, skill set that so many of my peers had. Um, We had never had a planner. We had never gone through a line review. Um, All things that are very foundational I never bought an item. Um, that was the running joke at, at Walmart for a really long time is that I'd been a career merchant and I'd never owned inventory, which is just unheard of. It was extremely humbling and in a really big whirlwind. I was very tired there for a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saw though that you were like getting promoted. So obviously you were doing something right. I mean, that to me, when I'm looking through your history, I'm like, all right, this girl, she gets promoted <laughs> like every year or two, they're bumping her up. And so, I mean, for anyone who's like the outside, you know, looking in, like other than just being great at your job, like what were maybe like, how would you look back at that time and be like, oh, yeah, this probably is why, you know, I was getting promoted and moved around. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I, I appreciate the the flattery very much. Um, I think being a lifelong athlete, there's a little bit of competitive nature that just has not slowed down. But I've been a people manager for 10 years and my success is 100% correlated to the successes of my team. Um, And so at Walmart, at that point in time, we were hiring category specialists. So each category manager, category leader had a pretty massive team, um, you know, ranging from seven to sometimes 15 category specialists. And my success was 100% correlated to um, investing in them and, and having really spectacular talent. I realized very early on that Walmart has a plethora of different tools and systems, and you really need to be able to harness different people's interests and strengths um, and opportunities and making sure that each of those tools are covered, each of those responsibilities are covered in order to, to keep the machine moving. Um, so I I realized that if I could do that, I think I had seven associates at the time. And then we scaled up to, to probably around nine. Um, if one, I could make sure that they felt very clear on what our objective was and understood here are the three things every day you need to do in order to hit these three goals that they would feel value in their work. They'd be able to have clarity in terms of how they're progressing against those goals and what they need to do um, to improve them if they felt respected by both myself and their other peers, we spent a lot of time with doing team building exercises, calling out small wins. It was really making sure that you know they were clear on what they needed to do and they felt respected and incentivized to do it and do it at a high level. Um, I've always said that my main goal is building the team that everyone wants to be a part of. And I think that fortunately, translated into my own progression and uh, increases in responsibilities. Yeah, cool. I love that. It's also cool hearing 
kind of like what you learned at Wayfair coming and influencing how you managed at Walmart. Like Wayfair, I remember earlier you were saying like we had really clear objectives, like going in there, you knew what you were there to do. And mm-hmm. then hearing, you know, at Walmart, like that's how you set up your team. That was pretty neat. What I've learned over my career is you always want to be, you know, 10 steps ahead of your competition, 10 steps ahead of the changes in innovation. But that's really hard to do. Uh, And it's a luxury that's usually pretty capital intensive. And in order to do that, you have to have a very clear vision and very clear goaling uh, to be able to create that that gap. Um, And so one constant that has always been really present in both how I've tried to lead um, and what I've taken from different experiences is make sure that the foundations are strong. Make sure that you know you understand what reports you're supposed to use. You understand what the goals are. You understand how different movements are going to impact different KPIs. And you understand your cross-functional group. Um, you need to always know what's important to the person sitting on either side of you and use that to really work in your favor and collectively across the group. I think the other thing that um, I realized really quickly at Walmart was it was going to be really important to demonstrate some wins pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make sure that those wins were achievable and not sexy. Like what? Give me an example of like a win that people were wowed by, but it's not like a sexy thing. Yeah, um, we did a line review and then assortment strategy within the first couple of weeks that I was there. And I realized that um, there wasn't formal onboarding and training for the associates and being able to actually absorb that and see what it translated to. So I developed a weekly check-in system that we use to basically go and monitor our progress off of each of those goals. So not sexy, but it allowed our one-on-ones to be really efficient. It gave me an opportunity to make sure like, okay, is this achievable? Do we have that tool? Does that tool even do what I think it does? And kind of get off to the, the the races. It also allowed the associates to kind of figure out what they like doing. Mm-hmm. So each meeting we would start off with a win um, and kind of a high five to either about something that you've learned or something that someone did in your favor. Um, and then that just catalyzed a mentality of information sharing. So they're also, we immediately had this environment of sharing instead of information as a currency that I'm going to hold really tightly, which in big organizations happens all the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But it's really dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah, it was really about uniformity in terms of here's the structure of this. Here's what our goals are. Do you understand them? Here's what you should be doing against it. Um, So it's more on the operation side. And through that, I was really fortunate that two associates, Aaron and Austin, used one of the, the metrics that we were looking at, which was looking at our assortment because it was so, so big and trying to find items that had a high revenue to the amount of visits they were getting, which basically would indicate, hey, this is a high run, uh, this is a home run item. Mm -hmm. It's just buried in the assortment. Um, And it led us to find one of our now most successful collections, start a partnership with the uh, blogger who had created the item. Um, And I looked the other day and it's still one of their best-selling collections. So it's it's amazing what just organization and clarity can do in terms of letting associates, letting people do their job really well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's that decentralized way of seeing like what's the best that you can do in this area and you have a mm -hmm. lot of freedom for it. And I was going to say for Walmart, I mean, they have so many things. It's like overwhelming. And the only way I find out about good things is through like micro influencers now who mm -hmm. are like, hey, go look at this egg chair, go look at this. That's like the only way I buy from Walmart because it's like they just have so much stuff and some of the best things are buried unless someone like you and your team are like, hey, we should probably surface this. People really like it. It's just you can't find it because it's on like page 500. <laughs> yeah, it's option fatigue is a real challenge for customers these days. Um, and it's it's kind of a self-fulfilling prof prophecy to a degree. We want everything, but now we expect retailers to tell us what we want or know mm -hmm. exactly what we want. Yeah. Um, and social platforms, um, I think for 2023 are going to continue to be extremely necessary for businesses to invest in. 30% of customers find new items from social media and about 80% of them will look to uh, different bloggers or affiliate personnel uh, to validate via reviews. So it's going to be increasingly a, a more important platform. And that kind of circles back to the the importance of personalization too. Like help me sift through 5 million items because I think I know what I want, but I'm not really sure. <laughs> yep. Yep. I love it. So in a little bit, I'm going to circle back to 2023. Yeah. So we can go through all, like we're going to have you pull out your crystal ball and tell me what you're thinking is going to happen. Yeah. Um, but first I want to touch on Pharmaca. I've had so much fun diving into your history that I'm like, oh, okay, we should talk about what you're doing now. So yeah. for anyone who doesn't know, if you could explain what is Pharmaca and what do you do there? Yeah, absolutely. So Pharmaca is a um, omni-channel pharmacy that specializes in everything from uh, your prescriptions to a really, really robust retail assortment of uh, wellness items. We specialize in quality assurance of goods um, and spend a lot of time curating different brands that have validated the ingredients that they're using, the manufacturing capabilities that they use, uh, packaging to make sure that we're taking more of a um, holistic approach on wellness. Awesome. Okay. And so what does your day-to-day -day look like uh, now? And how long have you been there? I, that's the one part I actually don't know now. Let me see. Yeah. A year. Okay. So you've only been there a year. Yeah. So, you know, what does your day-to-day -day look like? Absolutely. Um, with uh, digital merchandising, no day is ever the same. So my team covers everything from back-end operations. So making sure that our tech stack is... Uh, working and non-bug prone to site merchandising and item setup to all of marketing. Um, so some days I'll be reviewing different emails that we're sending, working in partnership with my amazing category team on building new items and helping to highlight what are those core value props? Why do we think our customers are going to love it? Building out different storytelling experiences to help people understand why sleep is so important. And here are some supplements that can help aid that. So it's extremely, extremely variant. <laughs> oh, okay. So what are you most excited about in this industry? Like, why did you, why did you go to the pharmacy business after working in, you know, like Walmart and Wayfair and Camping World? Like what, what pulled you that way? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've always been pretty product agnostic. Okay. I think one of the things that has always inspired me and gotten me excited is thinking about solving customer problems um, and figuring out why brands remain relevant. Uh, and COVID really turned that on ahead. Um, you know, brands that customers had been extremely loyal to uh, for decades, they dropped to the curb if it wasn't going to meet their price point or get there in time um, or not be safe. And 
I, like many people, um, kind of took a step back during COVID and realized what was important to me and felt really excited by better understanding my health and what I could do to um, build a healthier, hopefully longer, more full life. And was really fortunate that I had some very well-respected peers from Walmart who had moved over to the pharmaca business um, and felt very similarly. So I was intrigued by being able to work on a very different product type. Um, I've been very intentional around, although specializing in e-commerce, trying to get exposure to different industries because there are different challenges that as a business owner, you want to always make sure that you're you're being relevant to. And health is something that is extremely relevant and uh, to a degree recession-proof um, and will always be top of mind for customers. Um, you know, the the statistics show that more and more customers have become more self-advocates of their own health journeys and are spending more time both in absorbing different literature, but also proactive medicine, which is really a gap in this country. Um, we spend a lot of time on reacting to uh, issues or problems that we have now instead yeah. of understanding, well, what are those root causes and how do we prevent them? Uh, yeah. which is really what Pharmaca's mission is. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, different pharmaceutical drugs going around right now around weight loss and things. And I was mm-hmm. listening to a great uh, episode from a doctor where they're like, everyone's just treating the symptoms, but don't you want to figure out like what is actually causing that? Like your body right. is screaming for help and you're just like, shh, here, let me just like, just make sure I'm still gonna, you know. So anyways, I'm sure people are like, hey, Steph, that's like too contrarian. Don't say that. I love that. Yeah. But I, I think it's interesting thinking about like, how do you actually get back to like the root cause of issues right. going on and like solve that first? Absolutely. And realizing that it's not gonna, more than likely it won't be a quick fix and it's mm-hmm. not a one size fits all. It's a very personal, intimate journey that takes time and energy and resources to be able to address. Um mm-hmm as much as I wish that I could get a six pack tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. But how do you walk people through all, I mean, I'm looking at your guys' website right now and a lot mm-hmm. of these things I use, I'm like, these are great. Yeah. But how do you walk people through, you know, these products to kind of show them what works for them? Because I mean, I'm looking at turmeric and curcumin, which is like, yeah, you blend those two together. It's like black pepper and turmeric. That's the only way to activate it. Like it makes sense to me, but I also know like it took a journey for me to even like know about things like that. To yeah. then know, oh yeah, I would buy that. That's a good that's a good mix. So how do you kind of guide people through all of these products to be like, this is what you might need? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a really big focus for us in, in this upcoming year. Um, one of the mission statements that we've always um, invested a lot in is that quality assurance factor. Mm-hmm. So we've spent a lot of time in making sure that the curation of the brands hit that value prop. So one is making sure that the selection um, is representative of really, really high quality, really high integrity ingredient control is one. Two, we spend a lot of time in the item setup process, uh, doubling down on attribution um, and product typing to make sure that those keywords, those indicators in which people are searching uh, are very, very clearly exposed and denoted. But moving forward, we're spending a lot more time and thinking about how do we better map symptoms. We've always had an experience where you can very clearly see uh, different conditions and products that can help uh, improve those conditions. Mm-hmm. How do we take that to the next level? Um, right, like better That's sleep. That's a huge, huge bucket. There's yeah. so many different types of 
products that you might use, whether it's a supplement, whether it's a tea, whether it's aromatherapy, um, we will be spending more time in the coming year thinking about how we can bundle those things together um, to be able to attack these different conditions or areas that you want to improve um, in a more diverse way outside of just taking a specific supplement. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, because I was thinking at first, I'm like, okay, a lot of these products you could probably buy on Amazon Amazon, and mm-hmm. knowing if it's real or not is helpful because you'll always see that on natural products. Like, hey, this actually right. isn't what I thought it was, but you could still get it on Amazon and maybe trust it. However, when I see here like the conditions, like that's huge having someone come in that way and be like allergy re- relief here in Texas, mm-hmm. everyone needs it. And being like, oh, right. okay, here are things I could be working with. That's powerful. Very, very cool. Yeah, and I think to your point, and and nothing against Amazon, but you know the type of items that we sell are very personal. Um, and when people go down their healthcare journeys, it's with a very specific intention in mind. This idea of proactivity is relatively new to the masses, I'd say. Um, there've always been there's always been a, a huge population of self advocates in terms of proactive health, but um, there's a lot to be said for I think where you buy something from and mm-hmm. the equity and the authority of that provider. Um, and Pharmaca has spent, you know, 30 years on really bu- building that, that brand up and building a destination that is trusted and validated uh, by the community that feels a little bit less transactional than a larger, you know, box retailer. Yeah, I love it. All right, 2023, tell me yeah. like, what are your predictions? Where do you think this world is headed? I feel like it's like such uncertain times right now. So I know it's kind of like a weird time to predict even the next couple months, but what do you think is gonna be coming in like the world of commerce? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a question that uh, everyone is double checking their their yep. uh, crystal balls on. Um, but I think a few constants um, will kind of trickle over. We're obviously coming out of the this past two years of just unpredicted customer behavior. You know, customers had um, for the first time in decades the most amount of savings in their accounts than ever before. But that's really quickly changing in the U.S. Given the um, raising inflation rates across the board, we're obviously also um, the the world population is is going through a lot of change um, with a war and uh, fear about how that might expand. Um, So the way I think customers are kind of being observant of their wallets is starting to change. Now, because of that immense savings, customers got really excited about being able to buy in different ways. So credit card debt is starting to increase. um, And I think that that is kind of going to continue, although it's going to move into different categories. We saw over COVID, everything related to home amplification uh, really blew it out of the water. So electronics, um, home decor, home goods, uh, workout equipment, those I think we're going to start to see a shift in how those are being used within uh, new spending, things like grocery, things like apparel, um, certain types of apparel, things like Uh, discretionary uh, spending in experiences are going to continue to um, increase as people are trying to, you know, resume what normalcy looks like and businesses are requiring people to come back into the offices. So I think it's going to still be rocky in some areas, but there's still a lot of opportunity. I think for digital businesses, personalization is going to be 
one of the single biggest uh, investments, I think, for this next year. It's very hard to do well. It means something different for each business. Um, But the things that within personalization, you know, 80% of customers uh, expect it. 88% of customers will not return back to a destination if they don't land on an experience or get served items that are relevant to them. But that takes a lot of intelligence um, and a lot of sophistication from a technology perspective in in being able to do that well. Um, So I think that's going to be a huge investment. I mentioned social media and social platforms really feeding into this larger idea of omni-channel selling. Brands need to be where customers are, and that could be in the store and on their phone at the same time. That could be on their tablet and then later on their desktop. Um, The idea of seamless, consistent shopping is going to be paramount for brands to survive. Um, Customers need to be able to be on Instagram and check out on Instagram in order to come back to your your brand. Um, So those are two really big areas that I think are going to be uh, extremely important. And then a kind of step back is going to be a return to the basics. I think that a lot of areas have been playing catch up in order to expound upon whatever e-commerce foundation they have. And now we're feeling this sense of urgency in you know, building really sophisticated, jazzy new technology or feature set. And that can be great if it works, um, but usually quite expensive and um, hard to maintain So I think that there's going to be almost a reconciliation of technical stacks and technical debt, tools and reporting, how teams are built, um, and OKRs in order to really build out thorough one-year, two-year, three-year strategies that allow for catapult um, growth. I think there's been a bit of oversight in terms of what does make a stable core in businesses. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I was actually just thinking the other day, I'm like, man, I feel like the metaverse and NFTs and all those things really distracted a lot of brands. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because they got burned in the past couple of years from that, they might actually not be paying attention to the things that matter right now around like AI and everything where I'm like, I think you actually should, you should look into that. Like that's going to transform a lot of businesses. But so many of them got burned by the last sexy trend. Like, I'm wondering how many people would be like, no, I'm going to pause now. Like, we're not going to look at that, which I'm like, "Hmm, I don't know. I think you might want to. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's really relevant. And it's, those are always the things that look really good on an investor deck or a Mm -hmm. quarterly earnings report. But ultimately, we're still a little bit far behind that really being a needle mover in at least this year uh, for the masses. I think that return to fundamentals, whether that's like product attributing or, um, you know, setting standards for user-generated content um, or standardization and pricing manipulation. If that core is not rock solid, it's going to be very difficult to be able to invest in, in really jazzy new things. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, Liz, thanks so much for coming on Up Next in Commerce. This was a really great chat. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. You can find me um, on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks, Liz. Perfect. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.